Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you. And if you're a first-time guest, we just want to say thank you for joining us for church this morning. We'd love for you to check us out on our website, salemheightschurch.org, to learn more about who we are and what we have going on at the church in this season. Well, Christmas is this week, and we have some Christmas Eve services scheduled here at the church, and we still have room in our Tuesday services. And so we want to invite you, if you're still looking for a place to come and join us for a Christmas Eve service here at the church, you can do that by going online and registering your family today. We will also have a live stream of the Christmas Eve service on December 24th, starting at 4 o'clock, and then available on demand after that evening. Well, this week we have a special treat for worship as our entire music team gathered together this week to record a set for you that I know is going to encourage you as we head into the Christmas season. And so join us now as we worship our Savior together.
job, guys. You sound good. I love this first verse, guys. It uh, talks about it being a bleak midwinter in a world that's in darkness. And it seems like we've been there, right? But we have hope in the midst of that. So we sing this in confidence. And in the bleak midwinter, and all creation grows, and for a world of darkness, it rose in like a stone, light is breaking in a
call to all saints. Sing this. And oh, come, oh, ye faithful, enjoy full and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to
praise his name forever and we'll praise your name Father, you are worthy of every bit of praise tonight. And Jesus, you are worthy of every bit of praise tonight. And we are so thankful, Jesus, that you were willing to come and ultimately give your life as a ransom for many, making a way when there was no way to be with you, uh, with you, Father. And we are so thankful. God, I would pray that you would help us uh, to even remember that in this season, that this season is a joyous season, but it is joyous because of what you have done. And our hope, we want our hope to stem from that and nothing else, because we know anything else is empty. It's, it won't last. God, we know that knowing this hope will give us joy, as we've been learning about even this past couple weeks. God, so I pray that we'd be joyful in this season, that people would see that, they'd be drawn to you because of what they see in us. We pray that would happen. We pray now that as we hear from your word, it would further encourage us and give us eyes for you. And so we pray that you'd help us now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Salem Heights, uh, welcome back to week three of a series that 
we've been doing called Three Words for This Season. This week we're going to be talking about the word peace as it's found in Romans 15, 13. Turn there with me uh, in Scripture. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask you the question, what does peace look like? I was thinking about how our world defines peace and I saw just a short while ago a bumper sticker that said visualize world peace. Not really a good take on peace, uh, but because world peace hasn't evolved, people have considered that everything is just one great big mess. There was a newspaper article, I read this last week, that actually said peace was achieved. It said peace achieved in great big letters on there, but as I read it a little bit further, I found out that peace achieved is actually the name of a horse. A horse that had, uh, at its two-year-old state, been um, preparing for the Belmont Stakes, was looking really good in all of its races, um, but then it lost. And even though its name was Peace Achieved, all of its owners lost a lot of peace because that horse is no longer a strong contender. I was reading about some mysteries that had happened in national parks. And this amazing story was one of the mysteries in the parks. It said that eight-year-old Catherine Van Alst had disappeared from Devil's Den State Park near Arkansas's Ozark National Forest. She and her family were camping there. Apparently, this little girl had been playing with her brothers, and in the course of playing, they were hide playing hide-and-seek, and the dense forest there and the rough terrain caused her to get lost, turned around, for six days, not only her family, but search parties and people from all of the community were looking for her. University of Arkansas student Porter Chadwick was part of the search party that found Van Alst, and he told the Pittsburgh press that when he found her, she walked stoically out of a cave and just said, here I am, and walked into his arms. No concern, just as if she was waiting for her people to show up, completely at peace. What's shocking is that everyone around was frantic because that place is known for people getting not only lost there, but then losing their lives, waiting for help. Not this little girl, she was filled with peace. What does peace look like? That's the consideration as we look at this third word in a prayer that Paul had for the Romans. His desire uh, was for God to fill them with a hope, and because of the hope that only God can supply, that there would be joy and peace that would flood these Roman believers. He was praying for them to have peace. In this series, we've taken a look at those other two words, um, hope, that we defined as the strong desire and eager anticipation and constant expectation of a future guaranteed by God. When we talk about hope, it's usually on display as a result of tension that rises in the life of an individual. In the world, when tension falls on you, you fall apart. But according to scripture, when tension comes into the life of a believer, that tension actually begins to pull you out of the tough circumstances. There is a, a lifeline 
that is described in Scripture that is pulling you away from what you are in and towards a future that is established by God, guaranteed by Him. The picture we used is like a ski rope. When tension hits that ski rope, it not only tells you that you are about to get pulled out of where you are and be brought to the place that that tension is pulling you towards, Uh, The picture in Scripture is of a relationship with God and of an eternal home with Him. The tension not only is pulling you there, but it changes your posture. When tension comes onto that ski rope, you begin to get ready for that pull. And so it is also in the life of the believer. When tension comes to you, instead of falling apart, your posture changes to one of prayer as you anticipate God removing you and taking you away from that situation, putting all things right. Your hope is in Him to fix the circumstances. But also we talked about joy. Joy we defined as an experience of well-being regardless of circumstances. Joy is something that begins to well up in a believer. As a result of hope being planted there, joy begins to well up and it it overflows the experience. Joy begins to take over even if your circumstances are a mess. Hope and joy, uh, we've talked about in this passage, but now we need to look at peace. Paul has been talking about the power of the gospel. He has been talking to these people about how it will change not only their experience and their hope, but their relationships. Every single aspect of their lives is going to be impacted by the gospel. And at the very end, he just shoots up this prayer. He's overwhelmed with these truths, and he says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peace, as it's defined here, is an important piece of this puzzle. Paul is saying that because that well of hope has been planted, the hope that only comes from God, these things begin to fill up that well. Joy and peace are there. And it's important to understand what he means by peace. He's talking about a peace that's already been defined in Scripture. To help us a little bit more with that definition, I'd like you to see this video from The Bible Project. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. 
In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others. Like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. I hope that that video helps you understand peace just a little bit more. For the purpose of this message, I'd like to give you a definition of peace uh, and then unpack it a little bit and see how it applies to this prayer. Peace is a state of harmony, security, and provision because of a right relationship with God. It is possible for us to have one of those three things or maybe just a little bit of each of those things in the world. It is possible to experience that in bits. But the peace that's described in Scripture is of this completeness where because of a relationship with God, he has put everything right in our world. I'd like us to consider that for a few moments. A couple of observations. The first one is this. Peace is received. It's not achieved. There's a series of quotes uh, that you can find if you're searching out what peace is. Many people have tried to describe peace. They've tried to describe the uh, way to pursue peace. One famous person said, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Who said that? Jimi Hendrix. Eleanor Roosevelt said, it isn't enough to talk about peace. One must believe in it. And it isn't enough to believe in it. One must work at it. 
She was famous at working at those things, but in her lifetime, we did not see world peace arrive. One blogger finally has just had enough of it with a large following, David from Raptitude said this. He said, despite the earnest efforts of 60 years of the Miss USA contestants, world peace has not arrived on our doorstep. The UN has not managed it, nor did John Lennon or Oprah or The Secret. And I don't hold high hopes for China to pull it off, despite the latest efforts. Something tells me it's not coming at all. If that's true, could we live with that, he says? I say let's forget the idea of world peace. Let's admit that it will never happen and get on with our lives the best we can. It's naive to think that progressive government policy, awareness campaigns, and heartfelt pleading will bring about this holy grail of achievements. And that is because human beings are not capable of world peace. There, I said it. Now, is David just a defeatist, or is he coming to an understanding of this impossible task? For us as humans, just in our own nature alone, we have never been able to achieve peace, either personal, permanent, lasting peace, or world peace on any level. We can achieve just a little part of it, but underneath what we try to grasp after is still concern and a sense of overwhelming tragedy, not peace. A peace that is manufactured by us is not sustainable and it's not worth having. In researching for this, I came across a picture of Chinese acrobats. And these acrobats are known for putting on display the culture of the Chinese people. And one of the things that they do is they will find people that are very skilled in their ability to balance and their ability to, to do multiple things at one time. And in one picture, they will have uh, an individual that is carrying all kinds of uh, plates and goblets and all, all things that are stacked up uh, next to this individual or on their hands. They'll be on each hand or maybe even on each finger. Something will be on their foot and they will be actually putting on display this uh, amazing balancing ability while on their face seeming like they are at peace, like their entire body is tranquil. In fact, one of the things that they are intending to put on display with this feat, with this athletic ability, is the triumph of the person over complicated situations. One commentator was talking about that, talking about the hundreds and hundreds of people who apply to try and put that picture on display. And they said that it's nearly impossible because the individual, even though they project tranquility, is actually underneath it all, deeply afraid that it's all gonna come crashing down. So even though tranquility is seen on the outside of the individual, what's going on on the inside is turmoil and fear and concern that it's all about to come crashing down. That is very much the kind of peace that we see provided by us. But the peace described in scripture is a peace that God provides. It floods the soul, not because we have manufactured it, but because he has provided it, we receive peace instead of achieving it. It's not something that we put right, it's something that God does inside the individual. It is a beautiful gift that only comes from God and we can't sustain it or manufacture it. 
It's received, not achieved. But secondly, peace is being put right and made ready for a world that is put right. The picture of completeness that is used in Scripture is of somebody who was a mess and on their own could not fix it, and God has found them, not only cleaned them up, but put them right so that everything that they were made to be is fully functioning at its very best. But then he doesn't just leave you alone to experience your own state of peace. He has actually manufactured you, put you together so that you can be a part of a greater whole. He's not only put you right, but the hope described here describes a situation where you are put right so that you can be a part of a world that's put right. You're supposed to be a part of something much bigger than you. One of the great skills that my father-in-law has is an ability to mechanically fix a car. And I've watched him uh, take something that looked to me like junk, something that is just sitting on the shelf or has come actually literally out of a junkyard. At one time, uh, I watched him fix a carburetor. It was intended for my wife's car. Uh, it was having some trouble and he bought this kit and with little BBs and different parts, he refurbished that carburetor, one that had been broken and not working and, and on its own just looked like a oily mess. But in cleaning that up, fixing those parts, setting it right, he fixed that carburetor. Now he didn't just fix the carburetor so that the carburetor would be happy and clean and sitting on a shelf. It wasn't just so that the carburetor would feel restored. He fixed that carburetor in order for it to be a part of the greater whole, to be a part of the car so that that would run well and it would be of use. He had prepared and fixed that carburetor to be a part of something greater. In our life, this is what God does as well. He has not only fixed us, he has not only cleaned us up, but he has restored us. That idea of completeness or restoration uh, that brings a settling to us is not just for us alone, but because we're a part of something much bigger. We're not just supposed to focus on ourselves, but on God and his kingdom and what it is that he has prepared for us. This sense of peace and completeness causes us to feel a part of that larger picture. It's being put right and being made ready for a world put right. But finally, God's desire is not just that we would taste peace. He wants us to be flooded with it. Notice this, it says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. That idea, fill, is uh, the idea of um, to be filled to overflowing. And in fact, he doubles down here and he says, So that you may overflow with hope. Literally, super abound with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, when all of these things converge, you don't just have enough for you to get a drink. You don't just have enough to fill a bowl. You don't just have enough to fill up a well, but it says it is overflowing its boundaries. When God is present and all of these things are working as they should, the joy and the peace and the hope that he provides will flood the banks. It will overflow into your life. This is a significant thing. That idea of superabounding uh, with peace is something that is mind-boggling to us. When Scripture in Philippians begins to describe the peace that is available to us, it talks about the fact that God will come in and provide a peace 
but it actually says it's a peace that's beyond understanding. A peace that when we take a look at what we get from the world or what we have provided or even what we should expect, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense because to have peace in troubling circumstances, to have peace in a world that's upside down, to have peace when it feels at times like all the decisions that we have made have been wrong or skewed or have led to conclusions that were not perfect. To have peace in the midst of that should not be, but it's a peace beyond understanding, a peace that only comes from God. Why? Because it's not provided by us. It's not provided by the circumstances. It's provided through faith. By trusting God, the Holy Spirit provides a peace that's beyond our comprehension. God's desire is that you would be flooded with it. Now, this entire prayer is Paul's desire for us. I would like us to just wrap up the series with a couple of simple thoughts. The question that was in my mind as we began to study this verse is, is what is it that this verse that much looks like a Christmas card to us. Uh, hope and joy and peace are there. They're all pictures or words that we would see on ornaments or on display uh, in our world around us right now. People, when they think of even what Christ has brought, even the celebration that he has caused in our hearts throughout the generation, these words come up over and over and over. What was Paul hoping to achieve? I believe that the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate that the joy and peace and hope that God supplies can cause even brokenness to proclaim him. To help us kind of illustrate that thought, I would like you to consider the little town of Coventry. If you imagine a medieval city with cottages, houses, shops, huddled around their great cathedral, that was Coventry. People used to come into Coventry, they would come shopping or to the market, and they would come into the cathedral. It was a place where everybody just went. You didn't walk past it, you went in, and that had happened for thousands of years. The size of the cathedral can only be imagined from the ruin that's there now. And you can't imagine the colors, the stained glass, the absolute beauty of the roof. But Coventry's not called the Phoenix City for nothing. It will rise again from its ashes. The night of November the 14th was just an ordinary night as far as Coventry people were concerned. The air raid sirens went off at 20 past seven in the evening. 500 Luftwaffe bombers appeared over the city. You're talking 11 hours. 11 hours of this going on and on and on. The end of that night, people were in utter shock. 
You can imagine the running around, the searching for children, the searching for people who you knew had been in somewhere that had had a direct hit. Over 53,000 buildings destroyed or badly damaged. 1,200 people killed. The day after they people go to see the cathedral and of course it's just ruins. When the cathedral was bombed, they'd lost the heart of the city. The cathedral had a stonemason who was there obviously to look after the fabric and he went up the tower to look down and survey the damage. And when he looked down, he noticed that these two charred beams had landed in the shape of a cross. He saw that and he picked them up and he wired them together and he stuck them in the rubble by the altar. People of Coventry were determined that nothing was going to stop them living their lives. In order to heal the wounds of history, you quite often actually have to surface them. So surfacing those wounds is one of the things that our ruins continue to do. As Dean of the Cathedral, I have the privilege of introducing the Cathedral to many of our visitors. There's something about the brokenness of that space which somehow releases an honest recognition of the brokenness in their own lives and sometimes in the brokenness in the world. There is something uniquely powerful around that symbol because it speaks to the God's presence in the midst of all of our brokenness. As soon as you speak of the presence of God in the midst of destruction, paradoxically, it becomes a place of hope. The charred cross to me is a symbol of peace and reconciliation. And I think that message resounds across the world that you can have suffering, you can come back from suffering, and you can forgive. What an amazing story that is. It is possible with any illustration for us to actually harvest the wrong point. I just want you to notice one thing in particular that happened at the end of that video. As the people of Coventry came back into that cathedral and they began the process of rebuilding their lives, I want you to notice that they did not restore that cathedral back to its former glory. That the blessing of that place today is not that it's restored to its former glory or that they could go back to that former glory, but then in the midst of brokenness, they could consider the cross. I just want you to think about that image. For many of you throughout the course of these last few months, you have been praying that God would restore us back to what we had or what we were experiencing before 2020. Some of you, uh, even around Thanksgiving tables, have said, Man, if only we could be back there or with this would only end and I could experience what I was experiencing before. But I want you to wrap your mind around this possibility. What if God's goodness is not to help us erase our circumstances, but instead to embrace them? What if we just embrace the mess that is going on right now and in the midst of this, instead of having God erase everything that's happening, what if he begins to fill these broken places with hope and joy and peace? 
a picture of something that only he can provide, not because of circumstances, a picture of something that only he can provide through the gospel. What if the gospel gets lifted up in this season because of the mess? What Paul's prayer is, is not just that a storyline or an axiom, a deep thought would arise as a result of this teaching. He's saying, I'm praying that people, that you and I would be so filled with joy and peace that it causes hope to superabound to those that are around us. There's an old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May that be the case for you and I in 2020. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to experience this peace that only you can provide. And not just this peace, but Father, this scripture, Romans 15, 13, highlights a hope. And it says that you are the God of hope. And that as a result of that hope, joy and peace will flood our souls and it superabounds in hope flooding to the people around us. Father, help that to be our experience. Help us to be those kind of people that put joy and peace and hope on display, not anger, irritation, and concern. It is possible to be frustrated and still cling to hope. But Father, I pray that at the end of this time, this season, as we reflect on what it is that you did in our lives during this season, I pray that we would see hope and joy and peace where it shouldn't be. If the world was manufacturing it, if it was up to us, it wouldn't be there. Father, help us to see you at work in the midst of the mess. We give you our lives and we ask you to fill us with hope and joy and peace that only comes from trusting Christ. We ask you to do these things in Jesus' name, amen.